So, W3, we're continuing. This is the third message of our series, and we've been following this progression of the series of why we worship, with the focus being on our corporate gathering. So a Sunday morning, what's, what's the value and purpose of what we're doing on Sunday morning? This is obviously an area I'm very passionate about. This is why I do this for a living. Um, and so I'm really, I really am honored to be able to present this series to you. It's been a long time in the making for me. Um, and God's been speaking to me through this for, for years, and it's finally a chance for me to put this all together in a nice message. So we've broken the series down into three main parts, even though there's four messages. We're breaking it down into the people of the Godhead. So we believe in a triune God, right? We believe in God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, and each one of these members plays a vital role in shaping and helping us engage in our corporate worship. Um, and so each one of these messages is actually going to be focused on one of those members. And this week is the Jesus message. Um, we spent the first two weeks just thinking about God and, and helping and getting an idea about what God does. And what we, what we recognize is that God is actually the initial or the initiator of our worship and also the one who actually tells us what it looks like. Um, and, and what we then take away from that is we have the opportunity to respond to what God has asked of us and, and to engage in worship. And um, what we focused on was this is, this is our very identity. We are worshipers by nature. This is something that God asks of us. This is something that we respond to on a weekly basis, on a regular basis. Sunday is just a very convenient place that we get to do this each week, but it happens in much more places in the church than just on Sunday. When we're engaged in the community together, when we're in small groups together, when we're praying together, all all of these are examples of corporate worship. Um, but again, Sunday morning is one of the, the most obvious places that we do this. And so this is what this service has been, has been about. So I'm just going to open up in prayer here, and then we'll get, we'll get started on Jesus and see what Jesus brings to the table in this, um, in this discussion. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. God, you are so worthy of our praise, and God, we honor you with all that we do here on Sunday morning. God, we, we give our lives to you in worship, and we, we choose to be and identify as people of you. And Lord, you show us what this looks like. You've given us more than enough reason to follow, to share, to be obedient, and God, we just embrace that. And we ask that you would continue to speak to us and, uh, and move through us in a community. I pray all this in your name. Amen. So I want to open with... 1 John 29, short passage here. Um, and this is just going to help us start with, with Jesus. So who is Jesus in this picture, and, and what's his role in worship? It's obviously a very big, big role in worship, and so I'm excited to get into this one. So John 1, 29. The next day, he saw Jesus. This is John the Baptist talking. Uh, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So I want to put a question out to you all. Uh, what does John mean when he calls Jesus the Lamb of God? Um, I just get some feedback on what you guys think. So, so when John calls him the Lamb of God, uh, what's he saying? What, what is he actually communicating here? I'm going to open with a kind of funny illustration. Uh, it's, it's funny because it's, it's Star Wars related, and I'm a huge Star Wars fan, but it's the only real example I could come up with, so please bear with me in this. Um, so I'm a huge Star Wars fan. Now, for anyone who knows Star Wars, you'll know that the first three movies that were made were the number four, five, and six. And there's a whole bunch of reason for this. There was... <laughs> yes. Well, I don't want to say which one is the best. They're all, you know, pretty... They're all pretty great. But yes, they are definitely the best three movies. I think we'll all agree on that. So... The thing is, is that these movies initially, we, they weren't actually guaranteed to be successful. They happened to be successful, but, but they were created initially with the intent that they would just be, you know, a single movie that then expanded into three. Wow, this is working. And then after that, it became this much bigger thing. 
Um, and so what happened was, we get this story of 4, 5, and 6, which follows this storyline of Luke Skywalker, and he has a father, spoiler alert, Darth Vader, and I really hope I haven't ruined that for anyone at this point. <laughs> but, <laughs> but we're introduced to this, this, this villain, Darth Vader, arguably one of the coolest, most bad villains in movie history. It's hard to argue that. I know people will have their opinions on that, but mine is right. So, Darth Vader <laughs> is, is this, this bad guy we get introduced to, and he's, he's menacing. He has this very ambiguous story we don't know much about. He's got a bit of connection to the main character that we see, but we're not exactly sure what his story is. And in the end, he plays an important role on, you know, saving everybody, and it's, it's, it's great. He's this bad guy that gets redeemed. Um, but after these, these first three movies had a lot of success, the, the following movies were created, so one, two, and three, and this is the prequel trilogy. So stay with me, I promise this is gonna make sense. So one, two, and three were created as in the wake of the success, and they were created to kind of show us the story of Anakin Skywalker, who was Darth Vader, you know, after, before he fell. And one of the things that's significant and why it makes sense and what I'm about to talk about is Four, five, and six give us context to what one, two, and three give. So, arguably, the, the first three movies, those three movies, one, two, and three, with Anakin Skywalker, they're okay. They're, they're, you know, they're good parts of our childhood, but they're not great. But the character that we follow, the reason we're invested in this character is because we know that he becomes the bad guy. And so, while we're watching these three movies with that in our minds, it, it's, it's more of an emotional impact as we watch his progression. He starts as a really good guy, and he starts falling away into, into darkness, into a bad guy. And so what happens is 4, 5, and 6 create this context in which we can understand and relate to and, and see who Anakin Skywalker is. And without the first three movies, it wouldn't make as much sense. It wouldn't mean as much. So to bring it all full circle, this is what the beginning of our sermon series focusing on the Old Testament law that God initiated. This is kind of what happens here with Jesus as he steps into this, this context that we see. So John has identified him and said, this is the Lamb of God. Behold, this is the Lamb of God. And the only reason that we understand what that means now is because the context has already been created. So God has instituted this, this sacrificial system and this, this law that the people are following, that they identify around, that they gather corporately to do on a, on a regular basis, this is now the foundation and context for how we can recognize and see who Jesus actually is. And so, so what this passage is showing us is that John is acknowledging and recognizing Jesus for who he is in the context that he is, is presenting himself. So again, let's just read through John 1.29 here. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So, remember, the Levitical law, there were a lot of things that you could do or things that you had to do in order to be made righteous before God in the form of sacrifices. And this lamb, we also showed from the, is the Passover lamb from the Exodus, uh, is, is what Jesus is recognized. He's the one that comes into this context and, and is now recognized for what he is and who he is. So, Jesus' death and resurrection is a direct parallel to this context. So some, I, I've heard the question float by at least a few times um, in, in my life. You know, so why did God wait so long to send Jesus? Well, one of the reasons he waited so long, and it's, you know, how is it perfect timing? It's because if there's the risk that if Jesus had come in at any point earlier than that, nobody would have recognized him. And the impact, the way in which God chose to have his message 
communicated and reached out to his people was actually through this process. And as Jesus being recognized means people recognize him, people know how to respond, they understand the context in which he gives his life, it all makes sense. And without that in the picture, Jesus might have just been someone that kind of showed up and, and disappeared, and we would never have been able to see what his impact was. So that's obviously an oversimplification of a, a much bigger question, but that's a general idea of why this context is so important. So again, just to reiterate the question we asked, what does John mean when he calls Jesus, when he calls Jesus the Lamb of God? Um, let's see how many Star Wars comments there are first that I have to get through. Okay, so from Philippians 2, 5 to 11, big ideas we engage with. There are two incredible, unfathomable things here. Jesus redeemed us in his death and resurrection. Jesus is God and more powerful than we can imagine. Yes, absolutely, and we're going to be getting into that a bit too. Um, he is the sacrifice, yes. He is the lamb that is the sacrifice for our sins. Yes, absolutely. Yes, Star Wars. Yes, Star Wars. Jesus and lambs, Jesus is the lamb of God. Yes, yeah, so, so it's, it's, it's obvious what you guys have caught on to. It's, it's, Jesus is recognized. It's actually just that simple. So Jesus, who he is as the lamb of God and his role in this whole story is recognized. This is what John is showing us here. So what's his significance in our worship? Why is Jesus important in our worship? So we're going to read from John 1, 16 to 18. We're going to move a little ahead in this, this whole thing. So, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So the first few weeks, we spent some time imagining who God was. And one of the things that became abundantly clear is that God is out of our league. God is, is, is a being that is not equal with us. He is so far beyond us. He is so much more powerful than us. Uh, we see evidence of this in the way that he interacts with Moses. If you remember that passage where he's passing over Moses, and Moses says, show me your glory, God. And God's like, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to put my hand on you, and I'm going to turn around so that you'll be alive by the end of this meeting. Um, and so it's, it's very obvious. God is, is such a powerful being that he actually threatens our very existence just by nature of who he is. Um, and so... Moses wasn't even allowed to see God's face. So how on earth are we then supposed to be in community with a God like that? I mean, if you really think about it, like this God wants to have a relationship with us. We hear that all the time. But how is that even possible if he's so beyond our league and so incomprehensible, so hard to understand? And you see, we can obey and listen to him. We can allow his ideas to manifest in our life. We can build communities around him. And this is actually what a lot of world religions have done. So a lot of world religions kind of boil down to, well, here's this supernatural idea or this thing that we're going to build a community around. And, and most of the practices of these religions is actually work towards. They're working, they're doing things in order to give themselves access or to reach a certain point, whether it's a god, whether it's some concept of nirvana, whatever it is. There, there are communities built around. But the thing is, God wanted something so much more than that. Um, God wanted to be a part of the community that he created in true relational form. And if you remember, we are communal beings created by a communal God. It makes sense that what he'd want to do is be in community with us. So if we can't ever be on the same level as him, then the only solution is that he has to do the work. God has to be the one to take the initiative again to reach out to his people. And so we saw that in the first few weeks. God is the initiator. God is the one who invites us and shows us how to do it. 
And Jesus is the next step in this, this, this process in that this is how we be, start to understand who God really is in a relational way. So when, when, G, when John is talking about Jesus making God known in verse 18, he's speaking of God incarnating as a true and full human. So through Jesus, because of the person of Jesus, uh, he shows us what God is. He shows us who God is. And he does even more than that. Jesus is, is fully human, right? We recognize Jesus as the fully human f- person of God. And he shows us not only that this is God, he, God, God's a person that we can see, that we can, we can talk to, we can engage with. He goes even one step further than that and shows us this is what community looks like when we're in perfect community with God. So Jesus is like, in, in some way, he is, he is the perfect example of what it means to be even fully human, which is fully engaged in the work of God. So we truly know who God is because we can truly know Jesus. And so what Jesus does, what Jesus does for us is he, he becomes the knowable God. He, he's, he's God made known to us. And it's only through Jesus that we can be in community with this God. It's, it's, Jesus kind of steps in. We're, he's, he's a, since he is a human and we're human, he's fully relatable. He, he experiences life the way we do. He experiences his relationship with God the way that we can. And so he models for us what that looks like as a life of worship, but also in, in a very practical, you know, I, I'm God, but I am relatable. I'm relational now. I can be with my people. So again, John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So Jesus' actions give us access to, to, to God, to who he is. In Matthew 5, 17, 18, we read this. So do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, as I, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. So one of the questions that's kind of left here is, so God creates this system. Jesus steps into the picture, and all of a sudden, we don't have to follow the law, right? There's this, there's that kind of question that gets left open. What was Jesus' purpose in this? So God prescribes the system. What does worship look look like? He invites us into it. Here's how to do it. And then something changes with Jesus. Not only is the context created, the Old Testament, there's there's a role in the Old Testament called the high priest. So in the Levitical law, the the Levite priests, there was there was a person who was appointed to actually be the kind of final step into what is the holy of holies. And the holy of holies is the place where God's glory actually dwells among His people. Um, it's there's kind of it's kind of scary. They had to tie like a rope around his ankle in case he died. They could kind of pull him out because only the high priest was allowed access to the holy of holies or or the glory of God as close as we could get. So by stepping into this context, with that as our understanding, Jesus actually becomes that high priest. So the people would do the work in the community, in the Levitical law, they'd only get so far as the high priest. They would make their offerings, the high priest would walk them through that process, they'd be the wor- in some ways they'd be the worship leaders. But at the end of the day, the high priest was the only exclusive one who was allowed access to God. So in Hebrews 2, 17, 18, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So Jesus is the sacrificial lamb, and as the sacrificial lamb, he's fulfilled now the purpose of the law. So if you remember, he said, not, a, not an iota or a dot will be taken away from the law until it is accomplished. And so the law is still good. The law is still valuable. God didn't just institute it for no reason. It, it's, it's, there's, there's elements of it that are valuable, and, and it shows us what 
relationship looks like in a holy setting. Again, it gives us this identity that we kind of, that we kind of gather around and celebrate. But Jesus comes in and actually fulfills its purpose, which is to allow its people, to allow God's people to connect with him. And so now Jesus is kind of the mediator. He is, not kind of. He is the mediator between us and God. He's relationable. He's knowable. We can know who Jesus is. We can follow his example. And we now get to be in relationship with this God because we now have a high priest who has made us right, who is, who is going to God on our behalf, who calls us righteous before him. So we've been given access to the Holy of Holies now. Um, and the Holy of Holies, again, is where the, where the glory of God dwells among his people. So this place in which God, this, this is the place where God's glory dwells is now in us. So because of the work of Jesus, because Jesus now acts as our high priest, the glory of God can now dwell within us. And this is, this is the... I mean, this is the, like the full stop moment. This is where we recognize that what was once exclusive and unaccessible is now accessible to us through the work of Jesus. We, that, that place in which God's glory can dwell is right here. So we talked about how worship is an act of obedience in response to the invitation of God. And Jesus is the one who exemplifies this. He shows us what this looks like when we take this practice. So, so the glory of God dwells within us. Great. Now what? Jesus is the answer to that. We, we, we model our lives after Jesus. And so, let me just throw a question on Slack again for you. How does Jesus becoming our high priest practically change our corporate worship? So, because Jesus stepped into the context, God made, he made God known and gives us access. He now becomes the very context of our worship. So, Practically speaking, how does Jesus actually change it? Well, for one, we no longer have to identify as people of God because of the works that we're doing, because of the things that we do. We're the people who are set apart from the nations. We follow this law. This makes us special and unique. Now we center around Jesus. We center around the work of Jesus, not the work that we did before of the Levitical law. So the context of our corporate worship now becomes completely centered on Jesus. So if you remember in the first few weeks, we talked about, okay, worship, corporate worship is about gathering around the saving work of God. This obviously hasn't changed because who is the most important part of God's saving action? Who, who has the largest impact in God's saving plan and his, his plan in salvation? And that is Jesus. And so what this, what this means for us is, is we center our identity now around Jesus. We are people of Jesus. So we are Jesus people. And there are some very practical ways, actually, that we celebrate on Sunday as a result of this. So the first is that we gather on Sundays. Sundays is the day Jesus rose from the dead. So we, we gather on Sundays, again, to remind ourselves of God's saving action. So Jesus died for our sins. Because of that, we can now step in a relationship with God. And this happened on a Sunday. And so we gather Sunday to continually remind ourselves of that. And Sunday was also, a sing, was also a signal at that time, stepping away from your old way of doing things. Because, because Saturday, I think Saturday was the day that, that the Jewish Sabbath, Sabbath, is, Sabbath was. And so taking a step into Sunday changed that identity. So we're no longer people identified by the law, we're people identified by Jesus and the good news and, and his saving work. So the other thing is we celebrate our corporate identity and salvation around Jesus on a weekly basis. And you can tell because this is the language we use. We talk about Jesus. When we're talking about God, we almost always refer to him as Jesus. 
He's, I mean, he is God, he, but he is also the, the primary reason that we can worship the way that we worship. And so our songs are usually about Jesus. The passages we read usually celebrate Jesus. We are celebrating what God has done through the work and person of Jesus. And again, this is consistent with what the Old Testament precedent was. God invites us into worship, shows us how to do it, and then we then respond to that. So Sunday morning is one of the places where we should constantly be moved into gratitude and celebrating what what, celebrating each other in this community that centers around this amazing news and this amazing work of Jesus. So we celebrate not only the liberation from Egypt, which is where the initial prescription of worship was, right? It was God liberated his people from Egypt. Now we celebrate liberation from death itself. So we have our history behind us. We get to celebrate what God has done. And with the work of Jesus, we get to celebrate what he will continue to do, that we don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear these things because we have a God powerful. We have someone, we are in relationship with the God who created us. That's still just, sometimes you just say it out loud and you remind yourself of how amazing and crazy that actually is. Um, and, and again, lastly, like the direct contact with God is no longer restricted to a few individuals, and we have access to that. We have access to the glory of God in a very real and practical way. So next week, that takes, we're going to be talking about the Holy Spirit. This is going to be the next step of, so the glory of God dwells within us. What the heck do we do with it? So, so how does that impact what we do here? We've set the context now. We've, God is our initiator. He's the prescriber. Jesus now steps in, gives us access to God, fulfills the purpose of God's initial plan or his initial law, and now we get to act, and week to week we get to gather and celebrate what God can do through us with each other. Um, and next week is going to be the message that I'm the most excited about. So um, this is definitely a very small picture of what Jesus is, of who Jesus is in our faith. And so I just want to use it as another plug. Ron is doing a great session or series every Wednesday night at 7 on, on the person of Jesus, the life and the ministry of Jesus, and he will have far more in, far more in what's the word, uh, insight, have far more insight into what Jesus does and what the implications of his work are um, with the opportunity to ask questions, to engage. And so I really do want to encourage you all, if you have not make the time for that yet. I want to encourage you to do so. So I'm just going to close today in prayer, and next week we'll, we'll talk about the Holy Spirit. As good Pentecostals, we're going to see what the Holy Spirit does in these settings, because that to me is going to be the point in which this becomes incredibly practical. So we've dealt with a lot of the context. We've set a stage now. So what has God done? What's his role? How does Jesus change that? And now the Holy Spirit is, is the, the point where we can come in and say, okay, so now that this is all true, what what happens? What, what does that mean that the Holy Spirit lives in us, that God's glory dwells in us? How does that practically shape our worship? And I'm really excited about that. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for all that you've done for us. God, we gather each week to celebrate our identity around the work of Jesus. God, we celebrate your saving action. God, you've called us to be in your presence. God, we, we, we have the opportunity to be in relationship with something and someone so far out of our league, so far out of our imagination, but you made a way. And God, we are so grateful. We are forever grateful for that. And we pray, God, that as we continue to gather weekly, that we will be reminded of your amazing presence and your amazing work in our lives. God, that, that our community would be shaped by the amazing things that you've done. And Lord, that it would then move us into more action outside of our community and outside of these walls, Lord. God, we pray for all that we thank you so much for everything you've done, and we praise your name. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.